Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number one, Isaiah chapter number one, we're going to begin reading in verse number 27 down through verse number 31, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which uh, ye have desired and have confounded. For the gardens that ye have chosen, for ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth. And as a garden that hath no water, and the strong shall be as tow, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. I want you to notice verse number 28. That is our text this morning. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This section that I just read is a prophetic passage directed mainly toward Israel. But not only does it give a prophecy related to Israel, it extends a warning to the whole world, to all of those who would forsake the Lord. If you read throughout the first part of this chapter, you'll see the horrible conditions that existed in that day. And here in verse 27 and verse 28, I want you to notice that there can only be two outcomes. Verse 27 speaks about redemption for those who repent. But verse number 28 speaks about ruin for those who rebel against God. And that ought to give us calls for great concern. The Lord. I want you to notice that phrase and think about it this morning. They that forsake the Lord. This expresses the promise of God. You know, it's not an idle threat of an irate preacher. You know, whenever I was a much younger preacher... I, I I had a tendency to let my emotion get the best of me, and there were a lot of times that I said things that were out of place, inappropriate, and uh, even if I spoke the truth, a lot of times they were, you know, not uh, out of a heart of love, just uh, just merely venting my feelings about something. It's real easy, you know, for a preacher to get all ticked off about something and just rant and rave and, you know, beat the pulpit into splinters and embarrass the people and hurt feelings and and call it preaching. Well, you know, we don't accomplish anything when we do something like that. So this is not an irate preacher. And believe me, as Isaiah looked around, as he saw what had happened to his dear people, this man was brokenhearted. I, I mean, it, it was a crush, crushing feeling to him to think that after God had been so good, so merciful, that God had blessed them to such a great extent to think that these people would turn their back on God, which is exactly what happened. And he's brokenhearted, but this is not 
him ranting and expressing his feeling. This is God's promise. It's God's promise concerning rebellious people. And when God gives a promise, it's always certain. In verse number 20, he says, But but if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And throughout the Bible, we find reminders that when God says something, it's going to happen. Just as the video and the song that we just witnessed, God spoke and what? Something happened. Whatever God desired, that is exactly what happened. First Kings 8.56 says, There hath not failed one word of all of His good promise. Psalms 111 and verse 7 says, All His commandments are sure. Ezekiel 12.25 says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. Remember, as Paul said to Titus, God cannot lie. So there's never any room for doubt when God speaks. What God says is a fact. We might not understand it, we might not appreciate it, but it's still a fact nonetheless. The thing about it is that God's promises are, are just as true when He speaks of judgment as they are when they speak about blessings. One of my favorite passages is what Peter wrote when he said, God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. My, to think about all of the wonderful promises that God has given to His children. I mean, listen, if you're ever discouraged and it seems like that the world is just falling apart all around you, you feel like chicken little that the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you feel like you'll never be able to laugh again, that you're going to have to spend your life in misery. One of the best things you can do is just saturate your soul with the promises of God. And I'll tell you what, they'll lift you up out of the pit of despair. And when God gives a promise, it's true. It's true concerning His blessings. It's true concerning His warnings in regards to judgment. And if they're true, we cannot afford to ignore those promises. So here we see the expression of God's promise, but there's more than that. This also exposes the problem of man. In other words, this gets to the very heart of man's problem, which is the problem with his heart. We think about all of the examples of man and his rebellion against God, and we go all the way back to, to Adam and Eve, and we think about Cain and the price that he paid as a result of him rebelling against God. We think about Lot's wife. Here is a woman that had been warned repeatedly. Here's a woman that knew better, and yet... Although although she had left the city, her heart was still in the city, and you know the rest of the story. She was turned into a block of salt. And then we think about Samson. We think about not only all of the great things that Samson accomplished, but we think about all of the great potential that he had. It's not just what he did. It's the things that he could have done had he not fallen into sin, had he not fallen away from the Lord. And I suspect nearly every person here knows someone who turned away from God and they were destroyed in some sense of the word as a result of that. 
I'm sure you could stand up and say, yes, it was a relative of mine. It was a neighbor, a co-worker, someone that I cared about deeply. And I watched them. I watched them as they dropped out of church. I watched them as they entertained themselves in the things of the world. I watched them just gradually, a little bit at a time, got further and further away from God until finally they lost it all. The story. You know, we have no idea what has transpired behind the scenes that has caused that to happen. And then naturally, there are those that right here in this building, right at this moment, that if they so chose to do so, they could stand to their feet and they could give a testimony as to their own personal experience when they drifted away from God and the personal cost of having done so. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm not asking you to stand to your feet and give a testimony. But I'll guarantee you there are people just like that here. Because if you're a child of God and you've ever got out of the will of God to any great extent and, 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 and didn't regret it, there's something terribly wrong in your life. You think about all of the heartache and all of the misery that has been caused as a result of people forsaking the Lord. It's not that they robbed a bank, they didn't cut somebody's throat, you know, they didn't commit some horrible, hideous sin as we think of it. You know, we've got this idea that, you know, we each have our little list of sins that we think, you know, we've got them all divided up into the big ones and the little ones and the medium ones, but... But look, it doesn't get any worse than when we depart from God, even if you've never done any of those other things. To depart from it, to turn your back on God, to walk away from God and mark it down, there's going to be a horrible experience as a result of that sin does not pay. It pays in the wrong way because we reap what we sow. So here is the here is the writer exposing the problems of man. I'm certain that Isaiah had been left up to him. The Lord said, "Look, you've got all of these people here listening to you, and I want you to write something to all of these people that you care about so deeply." And remember, he tells him in another place, he says, "Comfort my people." You know, there's a time to comfort people and then there's a time that the best thing you can do to help them to be comforted is to encourage them to repent of their sins. And Isaiah could have said, all right, I think I'll compose a, a, a poem. I'm going to compose a poem about the greatness of Israel and and maybe I'll compose a song about all of our forefathers and I'll I'll encourage our people by you know, trying to just let them boast in their tradition and take pleasure in the might of their armies and things of that nature. But here we see him getting to the very heart of their national problem, which was the fact that they had turned away from God. And there's so many times when we think about America, we wonder what in the world has happened? What has gone wrong? 
in America that we have turned so far away from God and we think of it as a national problem, and it is. But understand that national problems are caused by personal failures. It's we who have failed. So many times we pray for our nation. Oh, God, forgive our nation. Help our nation. And well, we should, but we need to get right down to where we live And we need to make sure that we personally have not forsaken the Lord and walked away from Him. When we do that, you know, sometimes we look and we consider some tragedy. As you know, 9-11 is coming up. Everybody's going to be thinking about that and the awful, horrible, terrible judgment that fell upon America that day. You say, yeah, but that was some wicked, evil people that did that. Do you not understand that whenever God is threatening these people here through the message of Isaiah, he, he, as He threatens to destroy them, the means that God uses is a heathen nation. The other ones that knew not God. And mark it down, even, even if God doesn't call something, God allows it. God has all power. He could get rid of cancer. He could get rid of heart disease. Of course you don't understand that, but mark it down. God is God sees the big picture and He knows what we need. Even when it hurts. And that's why Isaiah is getting right down to the very heart of the problem of his people. Not only that, but here we see that this statement also explains the prospect of some of those people. You know, if we learn anything from history, it's the fact that we don't really learn anything from history. Because a lot of times, you know, we look back and we see what happened to some other nation or we think about what happened to us here in America. And we get the feeling, you know, well, that could never happen again. Many times, you know, we think God bless America. And we need to stop and ask ourselves, why should He? God has blessed America, but it's only because of His grace. We've certainly never been deserving. And to think about where we are today in America. To think about how ungodly we have become in America that we would slaughter little innocent unborn babies. Think about that. And, 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 and for God not to just unleash His fury on us is absolutely amazing. But mark it down. There's a payday someday. And at this very moment, there are folks, you know, that got the idea, well, I've been living this lifestyle, you know, now for several years, and it must not be too big of a deal because I've been getting by with it. Nothing really bad has happened to me. And consequently, they refuse to repent of their sins. Sort of like Solomon said, because a sentence is not executed against an evil work, the hearts of man is more fully set on doing them. Think about that a little while. Whenever people get the impression that nothing bad has happened as a result of the way that I'm living, I might as well just keep doing it, you see. But listen, it's only because of God's mercy. You know, grace gives us what we need, 
But mercy withholds what we deserve. And we deserve the judgment of God. But mark it down. We reap what we sow. Later, but eventually, we reap what we sow. You go out and plant a seed today. It's not going to grow up and be a full-grown tree in the morning, is it? It takes time. And over time, you reap what you sow. And you reap more than you sow. Judgment is inevitable when we turn our back on God. Somebody says, well, you know, preacher, it's hard for me to believe that a loving God would do anything to really hurt His children. Well, the reason God hurts His children is because He is a loving God. In fact, the Bible says, you know, if we be without chastisement, we're illegitimate. We're not even the children of God. Sometimes we look around and we look at somebody that makes no profession of faith. They never attend church. They never read the Bible. have no concern whatsoever for spiritual things. Man, they've got money in the bank. They drive a new car. Everything's going their way. They're in good health. And we wonder to ourselves, why in the world do they prosper so much? You know, and I'm a Christian, and I go to church, and I tithe, and I do this, and I do that, and I've got all of these problems. It just doesn't seem fair. We've got to understand that, look, whenever it comes to those that are unsafe, their payday comes someday. Someday. I mean, their time is coming. But why would God let them get by with it? They're not getting by with it. It said, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So how is it that God works to bring people to repentance? The Bible says, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God is good to those that the most wicked, vile, filthy people on earth, and yet God is good to them. He's not good because He's rewarding them for their wickedness. He's good because He's trying to lead them to repentance. But with the child of God, out of the will of God, our time of chastisement is going to come now, here in this life. Mark it down. Before you die... Those unconfessed sins, that attitude of rebellion against God, the neglect of your responsibility to God and all of those things, in some way or another, you're going to suffer as a result of that. Why would God do that? So many times we think about our suffering as a punishment from God. In reality, as a correction from God. That's why I often say, as I believe it was Spurgeon who said, God doesn't allow any of His children to sin successfully. We can sin if we want to. God doesn't prohibit us from sinning. You can go out here and jump off the building if you want to. God will allow you to do that. But God never lets us sin successfully. And here we find Isaiah trying to get through to these people as he exposes what the problem is. And then he's explaining, do not exclaims the plea of a loving God. You, you read, 
This is a threat from some cold-hearted potentate or some cold-hearted judge, uh, but it's a lot more than that. Just as a loving father, in order to keep his children from harm, will warn them of danger and chastise them when they rebel, God issues this warning out of a heart of love. Remember later on, he says through one of the other prophets, he says, thou hast destroyed thyself. God doesn't have to destroy us because of our sin, because sin has a built-in punishment. Its own built-in punishment. God can just sit back, sit on His hands, and just let nature take its course. And when we depart from God, when we walk away from, from what the Word of God teaches, and we ignore the will of God for our life, sin itself is going to punish us. The very sin that we embrace, the very sin that we seemingly enjoy, turns on us and destroys us. And God knows that. And it's out of a heart of great love that God is warning His people. Look in verse number 16 of this same chapter. He says, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Now, that's the promise. But notice, verse 20, if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You tell me that's not love? And if you really want to see the greatness of God's love, you turn to chapter number 53, where there in that great chapter, He describes the giving of His own dear Son for our sins. And it is so amazing. As John Newton said, it's amazing grace. How can you begin to even explain something like that? The greatness of God's love where God looks down from heaven and sees us in all of our sin and yet loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we think about the greatness of the suffering that He went through on the cross. Listen, and it says, For it pleased the Lord, it pleased God the Father to bruise Him. All that Jesus did there on the cross pleased God. The reason, that horrible injustice, the worst injustice the world has ever known was pleasing to God. How could something like that be pleasing to God? How could Jesus pray, not with my will, but thine be done? It's all because they knew what the sacrifice would accomplish. And that is the salvation of those that are lost. Whatever you do, wherever you are in life, don't walk.
If you're here today and you've already been saved, but you've just been playing at this thing we call Christianity, you've not really been devoted to Let me let me say four or five things and I'll be through. But listen carefully. We're talking about the solution for the pollution of man's heart. We're talking about our rebellion against God, our attitude, our resistance toward God's will. And over and over again, we're told that the solution is what? The solution is for us to repent. Number one, that's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable because He's the one that created man. He's the one that gave us life. He's the Holy One with all authority. He is the one who, who, who your sin offended. He's the one that sacrificed His Son. He's the one to whom all of us are accountable. So it's not unreasonable for a God like that to say to sinners like us, Repent. Not unreasonable and not, it's not impossible. God's command to repent is something you could do if you wanted to do. You see, He's not asking you to live a perfect life. Nowhere in the Bible you'll find anything remotely, remotely suggesting that in order to go to heaven you've got to live a perfect life. Nor will you find anything suggesting that in order to go to heaven, you have to give all of your material possessions. Or that you have to subject yourself to a life of misery. Or that you have to sacrifice your body. Or that you have to do something impossible. God could have said, you know, you got to climb the highest mountain, swim the widest sea. He could have, you know, given us something absolutely impossible to do. But He didn't do that. It's not impossible for you to repent because He's commanding you to change your mind. That's what repentance is. You say, well, I thought repentance means that you turned away from your sin and you quit drinking, you quit cussing, and you quit this and you quit that. No, that's the result of true repentance. True repentance is changing your mind that results in a change of lifestyle. It's not impossible. I was preaching a revival in Kansas City, Missouri several years ago when we was out on visitation. We were sitting there in the living room talking to this gentleman in regards to his, his salvation and he was unsaved. He admitted that. He knew enough about the Bible to know that he really needed to be saved. And so, you know, I thought, boy, praise the Lord. I mean, we've got him right where we want him. Here, here's a fellow that you know, it's about ready to trust Christ as his Savior. And finally, he said, preachers, he said, the only problem is the thing that keeps me from being a Christian. He said, I know you can't be a Christian and, and be a drinker. And he said, I, you know, I love my liquor. He said, I got a refrigerator full of beer in there. And anytime I want one, I go in there and get me a beer. And he said, you know, I, I'm, that I just, I can't give that up and I can't be a Christian. And I tried to explain to him, look, you don't become a Christian because you quit drinking. You don't become a Christian because you quit some sin. 
You say, well, don't you have to turn away from it? No, you have to repent. You have to change your mind about self, sin, and the Savior. And when you change your mind, God begins to make those other changes. So repentance is not something impossible. Some folks got this, this idea in their head. Preacher, I know you're right. I know I ought to be a Christian. I, something in me wants to be a Christian, but I, I, ju- I just don't feel like I can hold out. I don't feel like I can give this up or give that up. I don't think I can ever live that kind of a life. Stop trying to do that. You say, are you kidding me? You're telling me to go ahead and keep doing it? No. I said, stop trying to do it. Start trusting in Christ. And He'll take care of making all of those changes in your life. This is not something impossible God's asking you to do. Nor is repentance selective. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30 says, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Think about that. Repentance isn't just for certain sins, but for all sin, and and all sins in all ways. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, whether the sin is word, thought, deed, or by an absence in our life. Regardless of the nature of the sin, we're commanded to repent. All men everywhere. Why? Because... All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're learned, whether you're illiterate, it doesn't make a difference who you are, the color of your skin, where you're from, where you've been, or where you're going. None of that makes any difference. God commands all of us to repent. And some folks got the idea they don't have nothing to repent of because after all, they haven't robbed any banks or slit any throats or anything like that. They don't have anything to repent of. I'm telling you, it's not selective. Repentance is for everybody. Not only that, but repentance is not unprofitable. In other words, it's not something that's going to make your life worse. That's what some people think, really. They think, you know, the preacher's right. You know, he's reading from the Bible. I suppose that is right, and I know what I'm doing is wrong. You know, and they got this idea in their mind that, if I become a Christian, I'm going to never be happy again. I'm going to be miserable. I, you know, I can't laugh. I can't have fun. Let me tell you, the most happy people on this earth are those that know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're the only ones who have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory, peace that passeth all understanding, a love that passeth knowledge. They're the only ones on earth that has those things. And you're thinking you're going to be miserable become because you become a Christian? Repentance is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself. Stop and think about things that you've done for yourself that you know that in some way you benefited from. You say, Well, I you know, I went to a doctor, I did this or I did that. One of the best things I ever did for myself. No, the best thing we could ever do for ourselves is to repent of our sins. And then lastly, when we talk about this repentance It's not optional, folks. He commandeth us, it says. In other words, this is not a suggestion that God is giving to us. This is a commandment from God. It's something that 
we absolutely must do in order to be saved and to be right with God. You can't substitute anything else for it. Somebody asked Billy Sunday one time, he had preached night after night after night in a big campaign on repentance. And the leaders, the pastors, and everybody that put it together, finally, they they got him together before one night's meeting and said, Preacher, do you realize every night you've preached on repentance? They said, don't you know you're rubbing the fur the wrong way? He said, well, let the cat turn around. Amen. I mean, he got it right. He got it right. He understood that he had an obligation to preach repentance, and we have an obligation to repent of anything and everything that's contrary to the will of God. And we can't substitute something else for it. In other words, succeeding in one area never justifies a failure in another area. Somebody says, well, you know, I'm not going to repent, but after all, I sing in the choir. I'm not going to repent, but after all, I teach a Sunday school class. I'm not going to repent, but after all, I give more money than anybody else, you see. In other words, we try to justify one failure because of our success in some other area. And the sad thing about it, those things that you think are successes are rejected by God. If you don't believe that, read the first part of this chapter. I mean, th- these people had not stopped worshiping so-called, you know. They went through the motions. They brought sacrifices. They sang songs. They did all of that. And yet God told Israel, He said, it's just noise to me. It's just noise to me. Even when we give our best in song and service and so forth, if the motive of our heart isn't right, God says, it's just noise to me. Oh, may God help us to repent of anything and everything that we know is contrary to the will of God. Our nation right now, so many people are thinking about what can we do to avert another disaster. We don't want a repeat of those planes crashing in the twin tires or We don't want something like that to happen in our nation. Look, folks, you and I cannot control our nation. We cannot change our nation, but we can sure do something about ourselves. When we do something about ourselves, that could be the key to sparing our nation some judgment. You say, well, I don't understand how that could be. Let me explain it this way. You remember whenever God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham... I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's first thought was, oh, wow, Lot and my nephew and his family, they're there. And so he begins to bargain with God. He begins to plead with God. He said, Lord, if I could find 50 righteous people there, would you spare the city? Find 50? You know, no doubt the wheels are turned. He's thinking, you know, that might be too high. So then he said, how about 40, Lord? And Lord, yeah, I'll, uh, you find 40. Finally he gets down and he says, Lord, if I can just find 10 righteous souls in that city, would you spare it? And God said, yeah. Think about that for a little while. You, you see, and if you read what Isaiah wrote in, in, in the very first chapter, said, had it not been that there was a little remnant of our people, we would have been gone. They owed their very existence to a little remnant of people. 
we don't have to have the majority of the people to change America. You, I have no idea what the number, what the percentage it would take. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know that. But I know that's a factor in what God decides to do. So the only one we can change is ourselves. And the only way to change it is to repent. To change our mind about self and sin and our Savior and to do what He says. If you've never been saved this morning, you need to repent. If you're here and you're saved and, and not serving God, you need to do what Isaiah did in chapter number 6. The Lord said, remember, this is in the face of judgment. He said, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. I'll go. I'm ready. And that ought to be our attitude. The only thing the sinner can do is to repent. But I tell you, for those of us that are God's children, the thing we need to do is to rescue the perishing, as the old song says. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. That's our job. That ought to be our joy to do our best to try to reach others. Let's stand together. Father, we thank You, Lord, for all of the blessings that You've poured out upon us. And we thank You, Lord, for the warnings that You've given us. And God, help us to, to not walk away from our responsibility. Help us to not turn our back on You. Help us, Heavenly Father, to not grow cold and indifferent. But help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to Your will, whether it's whether it's in, in word, thought, deed, or something that we have just should have done and didn't do. Whatever the nature of our sin, help us, Lord, to change our mind about the direction of our life. And Lord, for that man or woman, some boy or girl that's here today, and yet they've never been saved, oh God, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do a work in their heart that You'll draw them to that old rugged cross and they'll see there Your goodness in the giving of Your own dear Son and realize that You love them to such a great extent that He suffered and bled and died in order to deliver them from judgment. May they be saved here this morning. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Now as we stand together and while we lift our voice in song, if God's speaking to your heart about something today, would you come? Come on, right now.